When you're in the front line of ministry, you can experience all kinds of setbacks. You can experience huge discouragement. You can find yourself falling out of relationship with people. You can find yourself running out of money. You can find yourself um, having some open opportunity that you've once had being shut down all of a sudden. I remember um, several years ago, I'm just trying to say she's here. She's not. Oh, yeah, she is. I was talking to Liesl's dad, um, uh, who, had, who, who was a chaplain at Kerry, and he told me about when he was a um, missionary, a Baptist missionary in Bangladesh. And he was there, um, and you were there too, weren't you, as a child, <laughs> growing, growing up in Bangladesh. And he, I remember him telling me about how um, they were there with a bunch of Australians as missionaries for several years, doing great ministry, and... Um, and you know all these relationships with um, um, different communities in, in Bangladesh and all going well. And then this one day, they all had to pack up their bags and go home because of um, pressures from the government and stuff that happened there at a political level, which was quite serious. The mission just was over, you know, and for that moment at least. All those relationships cut off. You know, how could God let this happen, this sort of thing? Imagine if it was you as the missionary at that time, in that community, doing this good work, and then it's just gone. How would you interpret this spiritually? What's God doing? Is this um, God closing a door? (coughs) Maybe this is spiritual attack. Is this all just part of God's plan? We're going to experience all kinds of setbacks in our ministry life at Mary Creek. And we're going to need to know what to do when that time comes. You're going to experience setbacks in your own ministry with what you're involved in in your personal life, whether it's with church or outside church. And you're going to need to know how to interpret that when that time comes. As we continue to look at Paul's explanation for their setbacks at Thessalonica, We'll learn three, um, this morning, three unexpected but important lessons about ministry and leadership. And these might be lessons you might not have thought about, but they will have a direct application for you in your Christian life. (coughs) So lesson one is the first lesson. You might lose the battle, but rejoice because you've won the war. You might lose the battle, but rejoice because you've won the war. So last week we looked at Paul's conduct um, and his defence of his conduct in the last two weeks of his missionary team in Thessalonica. And now he's he's explaining why he's not there in Thessalonica and he's giving a defence for that. It would have been pretty easy for his uh, critics to say, ah, Paul's not really that interested in you, church in Thessalonica, because if he was here right now when you're experiencing persecution... Um, that he would be able to help you. But he's not here, and he's not here because he doesn't care when you need him the most. But Paul hadn't deserted the young converts at all. He just couldn't be there. It was too difficult. The best we could do was to send Timothy. Look at verse 17. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short term, in person, not in thought, out out of our intense longing, We made every effort to see you. I mean, look at that word orphaned. It was chosen carefully by Paul um, because it described the pain in his soul, how much he wanted to be there. 
Um, last week in chapter 2, verse 7, when we looked at that, Paul described um, part, one of the ways he described the nature of his ministry team was being like, ch- like children, like they had this humility and an approach to their ministry like children. And now he's using that language again to say that they're orphaned. They'd been separated for a very short time only, but while they were out of sight, they were not out of mind, he said. He's really gushing over them. His feelings are quite intense. It seems as if he will soon visit them. And in the Greek, there's this expression, face to face, I want to see you. You know, but I can't. He would have loved Skype, I reckon. He would have dialed it up if he could have. He's saying, I'm working as hard as I can behind the scenes. I'm, 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 I'm you know, trying to wangle a deal here to get there. I'm trying to work out a way, but I just can't. So it's for all of these reasons that Paul's wanted to come to them on several occasions. Look at verse 18. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, I really did. Again and again. But Satan blocked our way. These days, one of the um, common ways uh, in the Middle East, in the war in the Middle East, military vehicles are blocked and thwarted um, is by putting IEDs in the ground, improvised explosive devices in the ground. The truck is driving along from Baghdad to Fallujah, through the desert, on the road. The truck's packed with the soldiers, and then just suddenly the car flips over and there's an explosion and several soldiers are dead. And the car has been blocked. Now, in the ancient world, before there were bombs and IEDs, one of the ways that they achieved this same goal um, of, of, of slowing down the chariots was to cut slits in the side of the road, in the, in the road, so that the wheels would get caught in the slits and then the, the horses would get buckled. And when Paul says, Satan blocked our way, the word he uses for block is to hinder or thwart, which is the same word that's used for this military technique of putting the slits in the road. He slowed down the chariots. So, so when Paul says Satan's blocked our way, what he's saying is, we did everything we could to get there, but Satan scattered landmines on the road. And he's put them all through, and we just can't get through. And later on in chapter 3, verse 11, at the end of the passage, he, he, he evokes this image again, and he says, may, God, may our God and Father, may he clear the way so that we can come through. May he remove the landmine, so to speak. Now, of course, this is all a metaphor, okay? It's all a metaphor, and we don't know exactly how Satan blocked the way. We can assume that the Thessalonians probably understood. They, that's why Paul doesn't need to talk about it. And if they didn't, Timothy, who was there with them with the letter, could have fleshed it out for them. It might have been a political issue with the local authorities. It might have been sickness. We, we don't really know. Either way, Paul is in no doubt that this is a spiritual issue that they've got for why they can't get through. And the focus is on Satan. (coughs) Satan, the accuser, the slanderer. Paul here is referring to a personal, evil, spiritual being whose purposes are to oppose God and his people. I just want to just stop here and think about Satan a bit because we don't talk about Satan very much from church. I thought, ah, great opportunity. Who are we talking about? Well, here's some other names that Paul uses. The devil, 
the liar, the lord of the forest, the one who is utterly worthless, the serpent, the tempter, the evil one, the god of this age. And then you also hear others in the New Testament referring to Satan as Beelzebub, the father of lies, a murderer, the ancient serpent, the prince of this world. And Paul doesn't give us an extended explanation for who Satan is, but we assume that his views are shaped by contemporary Jewish thought, uh, theology, and, um, and I guess what he's learned from his Christian teaching as well. And the Hebrew scriptures certainly refer to Satan as a supernatural evil figure. And Paul sees that the circumstances surrounding his inability to get to the Thessalonians are to do with Satan. It's not like he's just doing this easy push the blame onto Satan. It's like, oh, I couldn't make it. Yeah, it's the devil's fault. It's not that trick. Because in Paul's worldview, he sees himself as struggling not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It says in Ephesians 6.12. Now, it's always good for us to be reminded, as inner north uh, thoughtful Christians, that Orthodox Christianity has, as part of its framework, a belief in um, Satan and the demonic, demonic realm. It's not something we don't talk about a lot, but it's part of our theology. We don't, we don't actually believe in yin and yang theology, so we're not saying we believe that there's equal and opposite forces in the universe and God's on one side and the devil's on the other. Rather, Satan is an angel that has fallen because of his pride. He wanted to be worshipped himself. According to Jude, verse 9, he is the opponent of Michael the archangel. He has his own army of evil angels which he controls. He's clever, he's powerful, but not that powerful. He's not independent of God. He's subordinate to God. He actually can only go as far as God will let him go. You see that play itself out in Job. You also might remember the bit in uh, The Last Supper when Jesus is talking to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. See, Satan has to ask for what he can do. Satan is not omnipresent either, because only God is. But he does have his subordinates that can go around the world. What we can be sure of is that Satan is in an age-long struggle against God and his people. He started with seducing Adam and Eve. He made attempts through the Old Testament. Um, you can see it in the story of Job and others. And when Jesus started his ministry, what happens? Jesus is out in the desert. Satan tries to tempt him. But unlike Adam, who fell under Satan's spell, the second Adam, Jesus, did not fall. And when the church started expanding through mission and church planning, Satan clashed in fierce conflict with the saints, Paul says in Ephesians 6. And he's been trying to destroy the church, the Apostle Peter says. And he's worked to hinder the cause of God's servants. As in the case of Paul not being able to get to the church in Thessalonica. Now the important thing for us is to get right our theology and to know where do we actually stand? 
Satan was judged on the cross, says in John chapter 13, but he's still permitted. He's like he's on a leash and God's holding that leash and only letting Satan go so far. He's allowed to carry on that conflict and sometimes he has some success. But the Bible says his destruction will definitely happen. He's been defeated and he'll eventually be completely destroyed. We see that play itself out in Revelation chapter 20. He's a bit like Hitler, who eventually, by about 1943, knew that the war was over, but there were still battles, the Battle of the Bulge, and the Nazis knew we're we're basically in massive trouble here because it's the Americans, the Russians, the the English, they're all all against us. But there's still battles go on and people still have died and there's still casualties. This is kind of like what's going on. And this is the perspective we need to have. You see, Paul actually lost this battle, this spiritual battle, to get to Thessalonica. Satan won that one. And Paul's an apostle. He's like, you know, a superman, you know, in terms of Christians. He's got, wait, he's an apostle. You'd think he'd be able to win, but he didn't. Not that little battle, at least. So we should expect that for ourselves... There'll be times when there'll be battles, little battles that we experience, spiritual battles that we may not win. We might lose some of these battles, but we need to have perspective because we're part of a war that's been won. I've experienced spiritual opposition of all different kinds. It's a kind of thing that you can usually only really be able to see in hindsight. When you're in it, you don't necessarily realise. I remember when we were actually leading up to planting Mary Creek, um, you know, I experienced a lot of stress. And back at St Hills, when we're trying to negotiate everything, there was a lot of stress amongst the staff, worry about money, worry about who was going to leave, who wasn't going to leave, and um, some, um, some unhappiness sometimes in the conversations. Um, you know, the team, we, did, we didn't have a venue until the very last minute. I was losing sleep. Now, you could say, isn't that just normal? Isn't that just normal when you're, when you're doing a start-up of a, anything? Um, and I think, yes, that is normal at one level. It's just, just what happens when you're trying to do something new. But I think that's what Satan does often, is he gets into the kind of normality of life, the struggles of life, and it's like he sticks a knife in the wound or he picks at your scab, you know, and he makes matters worse. He, he tries to discourage, annoy and divide and confuse and do whatever he can to stop you from doing your ministry. What can we do to fight back? There's all kinds of things. We can use the Bible and remember the promises of God. We can pray and we can proclaim the gospel. We can work together as the church. And in verses 19 and 20, we see another thing we can do, which is to have God's big picture in mind. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul saw God's picture, big picture, and what was going on in terms of bringing the good news to the whole of the, the Roman Empire. And Thessalonica was an example of great uh, ministry and the gospel moving forward and people being transformed. They were his hope and joy. So what if he was prevented from visiting them? Oh, well, I lost that one. Never mind. I'm going to keep soldiering on. Praise God. And I love the reference to the fact that he says, you're the ones. When Jesus returns and we're in the new heaven and the new earth, 
you're the ones who are going to be my crown. I mean, it's, it's like he's saying, the fruit of our ministry is going to be what lasts into eternity and what, you know, is our glory. Um, perhaps a question you could meditate on, on is this. When, when you're in eternity with Jesus, what will be your crown? You know, the point is not to, to dwell on or be smug so much about how good you are and what you've achieved, but more to praise God for what he's done through you and how he's used you. Okay, so we've just sort of gone over all this stuff. What's the big practical lesson for this first lesson? Here it is from verses 17 to 20. Because of the reality of spiritual opposition and the work of Satan to get meddle and sort of try and stop us, we're going to experience some failure every now and again in our ministry. We're going to lose some of the battles and there will be things that go wrong and you'll be prevented from achieving some of the good things that you'll think that you should be, trying, you should be achieving. But don't necessarily interpret this as God being against you or shutting the door. It's not necessarily that. This is just part of living in this world where Satan is still on a leash. However... When you do lose that battle, focus on the fruit and the good stuff that's happening. God's big picture. Rejoice because Jesus won the war on the cross. Your ministry is still of eternal value. It is your crown in heaven. Lesson two. Be encouraged that your battles are a sign that you are on God's side. In chapter three, Paul shows us that while we have much to celebrate, we do need to still be there for each other in the battles. And that's why when God, when Paul couldn't stand it any longer, they all thought it was best to send Timothy to uh, help the Thessalonians out. So verse 3 says, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. There's a definite sense that Paul believed that the troubles they were facing, that was a normal part of being a Christian. For you knew quite well that we are destined for them, he said. Paul appealed to the expectations that he'd already given them. He says, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. This is a prophecy fulfilled, and it's very persuasive kind of logic as a parent. Remember he said that he's like a mother, he's like a father to them. Um, You know, parent logic goes like this. I told you before, David Vinson... He's not here, is he? No, he's not. I told you before, David Vincent, not to stick the knife in the PowerPoint because you will be electrocuted. So you should not be surprised if you've just been electrocuted. That actually did happen. Praise God for safety switches. (laughs) Two weeks ago. Um, The the argument goes well. I told you it would happen and it's happened. Get used to persecution, just as I said it would happen. It's a motto. Persecution is normal. So while Paul knew that there would be battles for them to face, nevertheless, he didn't leave them in the lurch. Rather, he sent Timothy to give a hand. So verse 5, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. Just as Paul thought that it was Satan that blocked him from getting there, he also thought it's Satan that's causing trouble at the church. (coughs) And here he's trying to help them with their own spiritual identity. The church at Thessalonica used to see themselves as part of the the battle, the spiritual battle that's going on between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. 
The tempter, to use the language of Paul, has targeted them because they're the people of God. Perhaps, you know, you're singled out at, at, at work as the Christian. You know, perhaps your colleagues make a friendly joke about you and, um, and there's a bit of a barb on it and you feel a bit small and humiliated. And, you know, be encouraged because uh, your battles are a sign that you're on God's side. Remember the motto, persecution is normal. Persecution of all kinds. Perhaps you're trying to sign up to a ministry at church and you work shifts and you've told your boss over and over again that you just can't work certain hours, can't work on Sunday mornings especially, but they still give you the Sunday morning roster. You know, and after a while you're starting to sense this isn't just incompetency, this is on purpose. Remember, the motto, persecution is normal. Be encouraged because your battles are a sign that you're on God's side. Sure, this is not... This is not ISIS here, but this is your life. This is your normal life. We're just talking about normal Christian living here. Perhaps you'd really like a partner and all the people that you know that you want to date are not actually Christians, but you'd like a Christian partner and you find yourself feeling really alone and isolated. You find yourself in an internal battle of the will and it gets you down. You feel tempted to give in. Remember, this is just how Paul said it would be. You know, These battles are a part of the Christian life, but it's a sign that you're with God. So two lessons. You might lose a battle, but rejoice because you won the war. And secondly, be encouraged that your battles are a sign that you are on God's side. And thirdly, here's another last lesson. Don't give up on the ministry you want to see happen. So don't misinterpret this as setting the bar low. It's not like Paul is like saying, oh, look, it's all a hopeless cause and don't expect too much. He still had this huge vision for planting churches all across the Roman Empire. A huge undertaking. And despite the battle scars that they all have experienced, he and his team and the Thessalonians, he didn't give up. He didn't want them to give up either. He didn't get to see them, but Timothy had and gave a glowing report. Timothy conveyed their love for Paul and Paul's love for them. And despite the fact that Paul and his ministry team were distressed, he says, and being persecuted, yet they were encouraged because of the faith of their church. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. It's like they've been, Paul and his partners have been sick to the point of death, but hearing about how they were going meant that he was able to come alive again. And you might think this all sounds a bit dramatic, a bit like a drama queen, you know. Uh, what's Paul using this gushy language for? Um, it's it, partly that it was just common um, practice, was part of their culture to write letters and and, and, to, and to use this kind of hyperbole in the in the about about their emotions towards each other, and um, especially when separation was involved, which was common in those days in the ancient times. But you know, we still use um, hyperbole and exaggeration in our um, letter writing today. I was thinking about. LOL, you know, laugh out loud. When was the last time you wrote LOL and actually had laughed out loud? I mean, we just write it all the time now, don't we? Because we know that, we know this is the case because when we do actually laugh out loud, we write LOL brackets, I actually laughed out loud brackets, you know. We exaggerate. It's part of what you do. Paul is just trying to ram home the point that, it, that he is on top of the world that they are doing really well. 
And if you look at verse chapter 3, not verse 9, Paul cannot thank God enough for all the joy that he has got from the progress of the Thessalonians. And in verse 10, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Notice that this ongoing prayer is a prayer that says something like this. Despite the fact that you are such an amazing example of love and faith in the face of persecution, and despite the fact that you're going to be my crowd in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns, and despite the fact that your, your great progress has brought me back to life, yet I'm not giving up on asking God to provide a way so that I can come and visit you. Despite the battles that they're all struggling against, Paul is not giving up. And this is a good lesson for us. I mean, how, how long do your prayer points stay on your prayer points list? I think a lot of us probably give up fairly quickly. We pray for our friend to become a Christian. A month goes by and we think, oh, well, nothing's happened. I'll move on. Do we pray earnestly? Do we pray night and day? Probably not. But, you know, um, it's not like this is the way Christians always have been. I think Christians from previous generations did pray for 20 and 30 years for people for their whole life. And I know there are people here who, who have done that. They've had people, family members that they've prayed for their whole lives and then seen them become Christians after a really long time. <coughs> But, but we, with our click, 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 click social media, short attention span, I can't be bothered reading the book, so I'll watch the TED Talk kind of, you know, um, short attention span. We can't pray for very long. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. But the bigger point is this. Don't give up on your ministry goals with God. Don't misinterpret a setback as God closing the door. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. If you feel passionate, keep at it. If you're not getting the church or other people who are wise telling you maybe you should stop what you're doing, maybe, maybe you should just keep trying and keep praying. Keep hoping. Keep strong. Get up off the ground when you've been knocked about. And keep this undying attitude so that when Jesus eventually returns, you'll be ready and we'll all be ready. So three lessons. You might lose a battle but rejoice because you've won the war. Be encouraged that your battles are a sign that you're on God's side and don't give up on the ministry you want to see happen. And let me finish with Paul's passionate prayer. I'm just going to read the prayer and then we will have our prayers from Ross. This read it. You can read along. I'll, I'll read it, but you can read along too. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. And may you strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen.